Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is News Episode 2. Let's talk roadmap. To listeners and especially sponsors who've waited patiently these last couple of months, thank you so much for your patience. 2016 ended up being one of the most personally challenging years of my life, and a lot of stuff that happened earlier in the year resulted in tons of work piling up at the end of the year. I simply had no bandwidth whatsoever for anything but work and school. But now I'm on my end-of-year vacation, and I'm not in class, or working for that matter. So here we are, a news episode, at last. I've also made a reasonable amount of progress on my lightning static site generator project in the last week. It is still a long way from being ready to use, but a lot of the foundational pieces are in place now. You can follow along with that at github.com slash slash lightning hyphen rs. Now, for news, lots of news about Rust. 2016 was a big year for Rust. Not so much in terms of any huge features, but instead in terms of a lot of small wins. In addition to landing Mir, which I talked about in the last news episode, and starting to reap some of the performance rewards from it, there are a bunch of other bits and pieces that have just made Rust much nicer to use as a language. So, starting with the language, a few of the biggest things to hit the language itself since May. I mentioned a few of these in news sections of previous episodes, but it's worth collecting them all here to get a sense of the rest of the year as a whole. First, more options for handling panics. Together, Rust 1.9 and 1.10 made it possible to define much more specifically how your application should behave when it panics. First, you can actually now catch panics and deal with them in a pre-specified way. That is particularly useful when dealing with cross-thread or cross-language boundary issues, and you can do that using the standard panic module. Second, you can choose to simply abort the process entirely with no stack unwinding at all when it makes sense, and that can decrease the size of your binary, and it can make your compile times faster. Both of those tools are things you should explore carefully before using them, because as always, there are trade-offs, but it's nice to have both of those tools as well as the previous standard behavior when we need them. And you can configure all of that in your cargo configuration as well as passing it explicitly as a command line flag. Second, Rust also got some new and improved error output this year. That comes in two parts. One is the introduction of a JSON-based output for smart text editors and IDEs to use, and the other is a nicer error message format for users, us. The new JSON error format for editors means those editors can simply define how to handle the JSON payload. They no longer have to parse information out of a plain text rendered error. On the other hand, the new error format, for users like us, makes it much, much easier to understand the errors. For one, as the announcement blog post for those errors noted, it puts your code front and center. It makes it much more obvious where the errors actually are. The old format included that info, but it often buried it in a wall of other text. That other text is still there, but it's arranged differently now, so that the code which doesn't work is more obvious. I have appreciated this change a lot in the last week as I've been hammering away at my lightning project. Third, one of the big hopes for mirror landing was that we'd get incremental compilation, which in turn should speed up the develop and compile and test cycle dramatically. That feature hasn't quite landed on stable Rust yet, but it's coming. It's been in development and available on Nightly for several months now, and if you take a look at the GitHub milestone where work is being tracked, it's getting awfully close to landing the first phase on stable. Sometime soon, we all hope. 
Fourth, one of the other hopes for Mir is that it will enable better optimizations. There aren't a ton of these yet, but they're trickling in and they're adding up. A bunch of optimizations landed in 1.13 and 1.14 in particular, so if you're interested in the details, you should take a look at those blog posts and release notes, which I have, of course, linked in the show notes. And the same is, of course, true for the pieces I mentioned above as well. Fifth, the new question mark operator landed. This is basically a replacement for the old try macro, and it lets you immediately return at the end of a given statement if the return value of that statement would be an error in line with an error you have defined as part of a result type. And we'll be able to generalize this to other types using the carrier trait in the future as well. This isn't one of those things that makes an enormous difference in any single piece of code. Instead, it's one that adds up over all the little places in your code where you have to wrap something in four layers of tribang, and instead can just put question marks at the end of each of those expressions. Again, small but nice. Finally, and perhaps most intriguingly in terms of changes to the Rust language itself, 1.14 came with experimental support for WebAssembly. If you're not a web developer, you probably haven't heard of WebAssembly, and even if you are a web developer, it may not have crossed your radar yet. It is on the very, very cuttingest of edges. WebAssembly builds on work done in the browser space in the last few years, and it aims to provide what its website describes as, quote, a portable, size, and load time efficient format suitable for compilation to the web, unquote. Put another way, it's a way to compile a variety of languages to a high-performance representation, better than normal JavaScript by a considerable margin, that can run in contexts like browsers. You can actually do some pretty interesting things targeting the browser from Rust now, since that experimental support landed in 1.14. WebAssembly is now an available compile target. There's a long ways to go there, both on that compilation front, getting the compile target right, and the WebAssembly standard, but we've taken the first steps. This is a really neat part of our future, I think. So let's say you wanted to play with WebAssembly. How would you add that compilation target? Well, a tool I mentioned as being newly in beta in the last news episode has now made it to 1.0. It graduated. It's all grown up. Rustup is now the officially recommended tool for managing your Rust installations. Rustup lets you install any specific version of Rust, as well as just grabbing the latest stable, beta, or nightly versions of the toolchain, and that includes Cargo. But it also supports installing more than one target for the compilation process, and that's how you can compile to WebAssembly today. For any target supported by Rust, you can just type rustup target add followed by the name of the target. You may also need a couple other pieces to link to, but this actually gets you everything you need for cross-compilation for a lot of the targets. For WebAssembly, you need to install one other dependency, a tool called Emscripten. Then you just type rustup target add wasm32 hyphen unknown hyphen Emscripten, and you're off to the races using otherwise your normal Rust toolchain. You can just do cargo build dash dash target and that same wasm32 unknown emscripten, for example, and you can build a whole crate targeting WebAssembly. You can do the same thing if you're cross-compiling to Windows from Mac or Linux. You just need to snag a few dependencies and you're off to the races. You can ship native binaries on every platform, including, now, the web. If you'd like to see a fairly trivial but 
nonetheless, I think, interesting example of compiling for Windows from Mac OS, you can take a look at a blog post I wrote describing the process a month or so ago. Having rust up in our tool belt for the years ahead is, I think, going to help a ton for cross-compiling. Anyone who has ever tried to do the same thing with C or C++ will presumably appreciate this a lot. And for that matter, anyone who has ever tried to ship standalone binaries of Python or Ruby programs knows that that has its own challenges too. Having the ability to ship standalone binaries and integrate easily with existing C libraries puts Rust, again, in a pretty unique spot. You should see more work on this and on Xargo or Zargo. I'm not sure how the project is normally pronounced, but it is a cross-compilation tool chain around Cargo. And in the months and years ahead, we're going to see it get better and better. But it's actually already in a pretty great spot. Now, speaking of Cargo proper... It has mostly just chugged along steadily over the past few months, but it did get one very significant new feature this year. That feature is the ability to manage a workspace. The idea here is you often have a set of related crates which you want to be distributed and compiled separately from each other, but which work together closely and which you want to be able to use with each other easily. A workspace lets you define exactly that setup without having to do all of the development in a single version control repository or even a single file tree. To define a workspace, you just have to add a workspace section in the main crate's cargo.toml file. Then you specify the root workspace in each child crate's cargo.toml file. You can also optionally specify the child crates in the main crate, but you don't have to. Also, handily enough, you don't even have to specify it for the child crates if they do live in a single file tree. For example, if they're git subrepositories or something like that. You only have to go to the work of specifying them if they're not in that quote-unquote conventional location. Once you have the workspace set up, when you cargo build any of the child crates, the compiled binaries end up in the relevant target directory for the parent crate, ready to be linked into the final application. And when you cargo build the parent crate, it will pull those dependencies in together just as if they were located elsewhere on Git or on crates.io or whatever else, but with the binaries already available for linkage, so that can speed up the process substantially. And of course, more importantly, it just makes organizing these kinds of projects a lot easier. This isn't necessarily something every project will deal with, but if it's something your project deals with, you'll definitely be happy to have this. And it's the kind of thing that many projects will eventually run into as they grow and scale. So even if you don't need it today, you might tomorrow. The last big thing that is worth mentioning as a 2016 development is the Rust language service. This one is a huge work in progress. We haven't seen a lot of it publicly since it was demoed back at RustConf, but it has been seeing steady, though quiet, incremental development since then. The Rust language service is a piece of software that sits between your editor, whether that's something like a JetBrains IDE plugin or something like Vim, and provides information for everything from autocomplete suggestions to refactoring. Historically, these kinds of things all were done and in fact had to be done on a per-IDE or per-editor basis, and that meant having to redo a lot of the work for every single editor. With its work on TypeScript, Microsoft opted to take a different tack. They created a language service that any editor could connect to and get top-notch information for all of those pieces of IDE-level functionality. 
syntax checking and type checking, but also finding usages, navigating to definitions, doing renames and other refactors, and so on. If you've ever used the official TypeScript plugins for VS Code, for Atom, for Sublime Text, for IntelliJ, they're all using that service, and it can be very, very good. It's easily one of the best editing experiences I've ever had in any programming language. So why do I mention TypeScript? Well, one of the developers who was responsible for creating the TypeScript language server is Jonathan Turner, who is now an employee of Mozilla working on, wait for it, the Rust language service, which will bring all of that same shiny IDE-type goodness to our editing experience. Of all the things that should hopefully land in 2017, a beta or even stable release of the Rust language service could be one of the biggest game changers. When you're just getting going, this kind of thing is invaluable because it helps you explore the space. But when you're an expert, it speeds you up and increases your productivity a lot, especially when you're doing refactoring work where it just beats the pants off of either find and replace or even the make a change and then work through a list of compiler errors cycle. Knowing you have a type error in roughly real time in your editor is, frankly, fantastic. Tools like Cargo Check can give you some of those benefits today, and that's what most of the editor plugins use currently. But those tools also get slower and slower the larger your project gets because they depend on doing the actual compilation work. Suffice it to say, I'm very excited both about the work that's already been done here and even more so about what's ahead for the Rust language service. Now, I'm certainly biased, but I think one of the other big changes for Rust that came out of 2016 was a new hard and fast commitment to documenting all new language and standard library features. I say I'm biased, of course, because I wrote the RFC that articulated both the need and eventually after 80 some odd comments hashing it out, the process we'll be using to tackle this going forward. But personal bias aside, I think it's actually a wonderful comment on the Rust community that the discussion about this was entirely, how do we tackle this problem? Not whether it was a good idea or important. If you've ever gone hunting for information on language features introduced since Rust 1.0 came out, you've probably discovered that a lot of those features aren't documented anywhere except in the RFCs which proposed them. You've probably also noticed that the Rust reference is extremely out of date. In fact, the reference currently includes a note indicating that it tends to be out of date. Direct quote. So when I propose that all new features be required to be documented before they become stable, that means there's a lot of work to be done. But again, the response was, let's do this. Now, how? And that's already started to play out as features preparing to merge to stable have been getting documented. We have a lot of work to do here in 2017, and more on that in a minute. But the big takeaway for me here was, again, that the Rust community has its collective head on straight about these things. We care about documentation, and everybody just wanted to come up with the best way to tackle this problem. It was not dismissed. It was not set aside. In fact, it was enthusiastically embraced. So go Rustations. Now, what about the year ahead? What can we expect to see coming down the pipeline? Well, for 2017, the Rust core team developed a set of overall goals to guide the development of the language. You can see the full proposal and discussion at the RFC, linked in the show notes, of course. Here, I'll just quote from the overview and discuss a little of what it should mean. Quote, this year's focus is improving Rust's productivity while retaining its emphasis on fast, reliable code. At a high level, by the end of 2017, Rust should have a lower learning curve. Rust should have a pleasant edit-compile debug cycle. Rust should provide a solid but basic IDE experience. 
Rust should provide easy access to high-quality crates. Rust should be well-equipped for writing robust, high-scale servers. Rust should have 1.0-level crates for essential tasks. Rust should integrate easily into large build systems. Rust's community should provide mentoring at all levels. In addition, we should make significant strides in exploring two areas where we're not quite ready to set out specific goals. Integration with other languages running the gamut from C to JavaScript, and usage in resource-constrained environments, unquote. There's a lot there, but the big takeaway is that the goal for next year isn't so much shiny new Big Bang features, but instead a bunch of sort of infrastructural improvements. Things like the previously mentioned Rust language service fit right into a bunch of these. The other big points of interest, high-quality 1.0 level crates, being well-equipped for servers, and being able to integrate into a large build system, those all make a big difference for making it possible for companies, maybe including yours, to adopt Rust in production. You can expect 2017 also to be the year where the quote-unquote primitives for servers all get solidified, as projects like the Futures Library and Tokyo mature. Then in turn, mid to late in the year, you will probably, and this is just a prediction for my part, but I think a well-warranted one, start seeing some more easily usable mid to high-level web frameworks appear, or existing ones substantially mature. For an example of one mid-level framework that just launched, and which should be able to take advantage of the low-level work provided by Futures and Tokyo, you can and should check out the recently announced Rocket framework, which looks quite nice. One reason I'm really excited about these features is that they hit my niche, which is web development. And web development with Rust is a fascinating little corner of our ecosystem. Finally, one of my personal goals for Rust in 2017, besides getting my Lightning project working, is to do at least a large chunk of the work necessary to implement the aforementioned documentation RFC and get all of our existing features documented. I also, as part of that, expect to chip in here and there with documenting new features as they land. I said a moment ago, a large part of the work, because if you're looking for a spot to jump in, this is a great spot to help. You can check out the list of undocumented features I'm putting together on Rust issue number 38,643. I'll link that in the show notes, of course. And I do think that this particular issue fits in very well with some of our overarching goals for Rust for this coming year. Having a lower learning curve in particular certainly includes having all our language features documented. So that gives you a pretty good idea of where Rust has been in the latter half of 2016, and a little preview of where we're going. 2017 looks like it should be a great year of just making things nicer and easier to use all around. Thanks for following along with me this year. In 2017, you can look forward to a lot more new Rustation. Interviews, the new Crates You Should Know format, occasional bonus episodes, news episodes, and of course the dedicated topic episodes. In January, you should hopefully see at least one Crates You Should Know and one topic episode. Thanks to Chris Palmer, Matt Rudder, Ben Whitley, Philip Keller, Peter Tillemans, Stephen Morosky, Rafe Levine, Daniel Collin, and Vesa Kailaverta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash or you can give a one-off contribution at any of a number of other services listed on the show website. Speaking of the website, you can also find links to everything I mentioned on the show today at newrustation.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at newrustation or follow me there at Chris Kreitshow. And if you enjoy the show, please tell somebody about it. 
It also helps others discover the show if you leave a rating and review on iTunes, recommend it in another podcast directory, or share it around on whatever social media you use. You can respond in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum at users.rustlang.org, or you can always shoot me an email at hello at newruststation.com. And here at the end of this year, it seems particularly important and appropriate to say thank you so much, everyone who has sponsored the show, whether through Patreon or any of those other channels. Thanks also to all of you who have sent me kind and encouraging notes. This show has been a very bright note in the midst of a year that was at times extremely challenging, and all of your support, verbal no less than financial, has encouraged and continues to encourage me to keep working to craft this into the best show I can make. And on that note, thank you to everyone who just listens to the show. It's no small thing to me that there are thousands of people out there who listen whenever I post an episode. Thank you, New Rust Stations. Happy New Year, and until next time, happy coding. It also helps others discover the show.